Welcome back to Thinking About It, and I'm here again with Dr. Michael Haken, um, just a preeminent historian in, in our movement, helps us to understand our past and hopefully give us some guidance for the future. Michael, you've written a lot. I don't know how much you've written. You just seem, every time I go online, you've written something, um, and always, always thought provocative. And I'd like to talk to you in 15 minutes, and maybe you can just refer some other um, books that people can follow up on. But for 15 minutes, let's talk about um, the, the science of history. Uh, what is a historian? Uh, is it just a storyteller? Or why, why do we need to um, pay attention to the discipline, the science of being a historian? You, you understand where I'm coming from? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, it's great to be with you again. And... Um yeah, history is vital, I think, for any society. Um, it's the, the account, uh, obviously, from the present of the way in which that particular society and institution, churches, etc., uh, have developed and um, why we are where we are today and how we got there and what has shaped us. And the, a society that forgets its history is like, it's like a person with dementia. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the sad thing about dementia is it, 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 it robs you of the ability to function in the present. And such is the way what happens when societies forget their past. They, they forget the lessons of the past. They forget what has shaped them, etc. And uh, so history, history is vital. And uh, I'm not sure our culture gets it. I, I think our culture is interested in history as a vehicle of entertainment and uh, maybe reading pleasure, but I don't think it's... It's seen as an absolutely indispensable element of the formation of our culture and the formation of citizens within our culture. Um, if it were, it would be as indispensable in the kind of educational curriculum as the um, science and technology courses are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. Uh, so you can get a high school degree without, you know, taking, you know, history every year. Unthinkable. And, yeah, it, it is. It really, from a, from my point of view as a historian, it is. Yeah. Well, we've a lot of people are dealing with history now um, for whatever reason. Statues are coming down, uh, new narratives are coming up, and uh, people are just assuming that these are uh, hitherto unknown facts. Uh, we didn't know these. Good thing we know them now. This is the truth about about our history um, as a country. Um, how you're you're reading these things too? How do we respond to these new narratives, these new histories? Well, it, there's two things here. One is one is that um, history does need to be written every generation in one sense. Um, that doesn't mean you're reinventing the facts. The, the facts are the facts. But you, every generation has different perspectives, different questions it's asking about the past. And new evidence has come to light, um, et cetera. So this is why we, we, you know, we find uh, histories of Canada being rewritten every 30, 40 years um, <clears throat> because we have um, new questions, new perspectives, et cetera. That does not mean that we are at liberty to rewrite the past, but um, we do come to realize that maybe Certain previous histories were written from vantage points 
that are not completely helpful in understanding all of the kind of complexity and ramifications of uh, of the past. So is uh, it- the challenge I think for us today is that certain um, ideological and um, uh, political issues have become prominent and have forced us to think about certain elements of the past, which we might not have thought about in those lights before. And uh, some of these, these issues are, are quite, uh, uh, quite controversial. And um, I think one of the great dangers of our day today is the, the, the moral, the, the, the taking of a moral high ground mm-hmm. about past individuals so that if they don't line up exactly with where we would position ourselves morally, we want to junk at them and junk them and throw them under the bus or cancel them as, uh, or mm-hmm. erase them or as the contemporary language is. And that's just, um, it, once you start down that road, the kind of the censoring of history, um, there's no really no end in sight. Um, the, the problem with the past is it's messy. And it's, it's broken the way we are. And um, people in the past, uh, people that we may have looked upon as heroes, uh, we still have to recognize the he- certain elements of heroism in their lives. But um, they're, they're fallen, flawed individuals. And it shouldn't surprise us to find areas where we would disagree with them on certain issues. But um, it's doing nobody any good to kind of throw them under the bus and just say, hey, we, don't, we, we want to completely ignore these individuals. So, for instance, you know, the whole uh, Ryerson debacle in Toronto mm-hmm. and Edgerton Ryerson. Um, I was deeply frustrated by that whole kind of series of events because I'm not sure how many historians of the period um, who were specialists in Methodist history and the biography of Mount Ryerson were consulted. Um, again, he's a complex figure. Um, his relationship to the the residential schools, which is the reason for his statue being torn down at Ryerson University and then the university being renamed, um, is tangential at best. And in fact, he was very close friends to a number of very prominent um, indigenous Methodist leaders like a man named Peter Jones, better known as Sacred Feathers who was an Ojibwe um, Indian um, who was a leader in that period. And uh, Welsh mother, uh, Ojibwe mother, uh, sorry, Welsh father, Ojibwe mother. And he, he regarded Edgerton Ryerson as one of his closest friends. But none of this was remembered. And I think what it would have been helpful, rather than kind of tearing down the statue, that maybe a plaque be put up to indicate, yeah, there were, there were elements of his ministry that were problematic. Um, because this is no way to remember. This, this is the way the communists did history. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when Trotsky fell from favor under the Stalinist regime in the 1930s, he was erased from um, Soviet history. His picture was uh, gotten rid of. Um, his memory was, there was an attempt to destroy his memory. And um, that's not the way to do history. Do you remember when uh, the statue of Lenin fell and then uh, Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. the, the toppling of that? Uh, are, you, are you sympathetic with, with those removals, or should they have stayed up with some ex- explanatory notes, just asking? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's challenging us. I mean, then you know, do we do we leave the statues? You know, I think of the one uh, that's toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. after the um, the fall of the uh, the Ba'athist regime in in Iraq. Um, yeah, do I mean? I, again, I can see where you know um, maybe the is it the the extent of a person's problems. Um, you know, yeah. There's no, there's figures. no question. There's no controversy surrounding the evil of of him or, or uh, Hitler or or some of these guys. There's just no question. Whereas with Ryerson, you, there's an argument to be made that he did have some virtues. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand why in Nazi Germany. Uh, sorry, in present day Germany, uh, the, the the use of any of the Nazi symbolism, uh, particularly the swastika, is forbidden legally. Uh, you can't do the uh, the Heil Hitler salute, mm. um, etc. And these these are actually forbidden legally. And you can understand, given the the the, the almost rank evil of those regimes, uh, and likewise with the Stalinist regime, uh, why they they're treated that way. But nonetheless, you know, you still have the retention of places like Dachau and Auschwitz and Buchenwald mm-hmm. because we cannot forget. Uh, there's no there's no desire to celebrate, but we cannot forget what they did. Um, the the residential schools are horrific, but they're certainly not on that level mm-hmm. um, in terms of their uh, treatment of uh, indigenous people in this country. So, um, and that you know I've got I've got I've got a lot of sympathy with. The indigenous movement its attempt to reclaim its past and to critique uh, Western culture at you know during the nineteenth century. So a historian like like yourself, when you, when you're writing history, you say you have a bias. Or you're trying to correct something or bring to light something. But can a can a historian just step away from that and say, no, these are the facts. This is not just my um, current position. I'm not a chronological snob. This this is the way it was. Is that even possible, or does everybody write from a particular slant that they just can't avoid? Well, you've got both. You've both. You've got both. You have the facts, and the facts don't change. I mean, Pearl Harbor was you know bombed on a specific date in 1941. Uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November the 22nd, 1963. So there are there are facts. This took place. Uh, the residential schools is a fact. But then the the historian is writing from a, a vantage point. So when you when you're doing history, you've got the facts. You've got two horizons at least. You've got the facts, the the the, the elements of the past, and then you've got the that's one horizon, and then you've got the, the the historian's horizon, the the presuppositions he brings to the table, the questions he brings to the table. Um, in some ways, the histories we produce are determined by the questions we ask, um, because they determine the evidence we're looking for and the way we interpret that evidence. Mm-hmm. If that, if the historian fails to interpret the past or right, and I think we have to argue that there are some interpretations of the past that are better than others. In other words, I reject the whole relativist kind of. Pro- perspective of our modern day where 
um, every interpretation of the past is as relevant as any other. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have thrown out uh, those or the, the narrative of, say, the Holocaust deniers. Um, the facts are always there to correct the interpretation um, in the next generation. And no historian is going to get it perfect <clears throat> because he is, he has only so much time. He's got perspectives. There's only so much evidence he can look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, with the advent of modern technology and digitization, the amount of material that the historian has to look at has, you know, mm-hmm. grown immeasurably. Yeah, I went on a Churchill um, binge for a while, reading everything I could about Churchill, and you got these different movies on Churchill, and uh, there are different narratives. There's some people whose who's, uh, dramatic uh, production made Churchill just look like an old drunk. And But I, I gained, as I read all of that, um, from, I got a good picture, I think, of who Churchill really was. Yeah, and that, that's a very good example, that there are different ways of viewing Churchill, and um, the, um, the, the, again, the questions being asked, the, the, the facts being, which ones are emphasized, which ones are ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obvious that Churchill was an enormously important political figure for the world, and particularly the Anglophone world, but to the world in the mid-20th century. And one could argue, I think, to some degree, that without Churchill, uh, the opposition to Hitler might well have folded. And Hitler, the Nazi regime in, in Western Europe, might have remained in place um, well, down to the present day. You know, who knows? I remember chatting with Arnold Dallimore, whom you know, and uh, was a, a member of my church for a while. And uh, he was doing a work, I don't know if he finished it, maybe you know, on T.T. Shields. Did he ever finish that? He did. It was never published, um, and it was not. It came at the end of his academic or his, his his career as an independent historian, and it. There were a number of friends at the time, like Hal McBain, whom you know, mm-hmm. um, who advised him against publication. Was that because and, he had some like he was warts and all? I Man, I talked to. Arnold and he he was not holding back. He had great respect for Shields, but as a historian, he felt obligated to say some things I'd never heard before and weren't complimentary. Do you think that's one of the reasons it didn't get published? Um, y- well, yes. Um, <clears throat> Hal McBain pointed out, for instance, that there, w- there was no chapter in there that dealt with Shields as a preacher, mm-hmm. and unless you know, um, Doctor Dallimore dealt with that issue. He really was giving us a, a, a slewed or a flawed version of Dr. Shields' ministry. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever Shields is remembered for, I mean, his preaching was remarkable, phenomenal, during, you know, at the height of his, his, his ministry in the 20s and the early 30s. Um, and then there were also some other elements, uh, one moral element that Dr. Delamo brought out that was he was making, um, uh, he was assuming certain things right. that he could not prove. Right. And Dr. Dr. McBain felt it was problematic. Well, we may never get to read it. Um, 
my good friend, Michael, we're at the top of our, our hour, our, our 15 minutes. I want to thank you for taking the time to think about history with us here at Thinking About It. God bless you as you continue thank to you. write. Keep, please keep doing it. Never stop. You're well read in our movement. So God bless you, and thank you for thinking about it with us. 